0: So we're going to look at the story in the book of Exodus tonight of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. So grab a Bible if you have one, if you want to follow along. This is the first part of Exodus chapter 12. And I'm going to read from verses 1 to 7 and then also 12 to 15, which will be up on the screen there. So here we go. Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month. The first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. And, uh, next slide. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Okay. Now, uh, this, by the way, this is the part where, if I were Presbyterian, I would say this is the word of the Lord. You all would say, "Thanks be to God." I'm not Presbyterian, so you know it's optional. <laughs> Alrighty, um, this little cup holder here. You know, there used to be an egg in this cup holder. I've got my water. Who found the egg that was in the cup holder tonight? Oh, wait. Oh, wait, there's a, oh, there's a, wow, we had a controversy tonight about who founded the, uh, the, the podium egg. Okay, well, you guys can uh, do an, you can thumb wrestle later. Okay, there are three things, three things that happen in the story of the Exodus. Number one, God rescues the Israelites from their slavery. Number two, God redeems them by a sacrifice. And then number three, he saves them through their faith. Now each of these three things, all of these, are little pictures of what the gospel is. And so look at these with me as we go through and just ask yourself like, okay, where do I see Jesus in these three things? So number one, one of the things that God does in this story is he rescues them from slavery. So verse one, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt... So they're in Egypt. Now, why are they in Egypt? Well, they're in Egypt because they're in slavery. And they've been there for a, hundred, you know, a couple hundred years. A couple hundred years before, God promised a guy named Abraham, he's the father of the Israelites, that eventually he's going to come and he's going to redeem Abraham's people out of Egypt. So the time comes, God looks on their suffering, he remembers his promise to them, and so he sends a guy named Moses to go and be their rescuer, to lead them out of slavery. Now, why is this so significant for for us? I mean, we're not in slavery, are we? (laughs) Interesting question. Well, the reason that that this story matters to us is because when you come to the New Testament, the New Testament says that the Exodus story is actually a picture of the gospel. So Paul says, this is in his letter, 1 Corinthians, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So he obviously thinks that this story is actually a story about Jesus. So in the Old Testament... The way it worked was Moses rescued the Israelites from slavery, but in the New Testament, Jesus rescues us from sin. Now, here's what that means. What that means is that all sin is slavery. All sin is slavery. Jesus, in John chapter 8, verse 34, he says, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So this actually is straight from the lips of Jesus himself. All sin is slavery. Now, you might be like, actually, Jesus' hearers when he says that, who hear that, and they kind of balk at him, and they say, we're not slaves. In fact, they say, we've never been slaves of anybody. Which is kind of funny, because they're Jews, and sure enough, like, this story that we're reading, they, they, they were very much enslaved, too, to somebody. But anyway, you know, everyone kind of forgets their history every now and then. They must have forgotten theirs. But they, they say, Jesus, we're not slaves. How are we slaves? We're free. But Jesus says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. If you've sinned, then that means that you've been enslaved. Now, how does that work? Why does Jesus say that all sin is slavery? Um, I want to put up a picture on the screen So this picture is of my uncle, uh, my Uncle Steve. Uh, This picture of him when he was a young man. He was a brilliant guy. I mean, he was just extraordinarily creative, uh, just really sharp guy. He might well have been kind of the smartest guy in our family. Uh, But then this next, I'm gonna show you another picture. This is a picture of my Uncle Steve's grave, which I saw actually for the first time uh, last summer when I was on a road trip through Oklahoma where he, he lived. And he died at the age of 57, so he was pretty young. I mean, the reason that he died so early was because from a pretty early age, uh, drugs and alcohol were a huge part of his life, and, and those things were substances that he was addicted to. And, you know, fortunately, the, we, we have reason to think that he, he eventually uh, died with his trust in Christ, we're, you know, I won't really know this side of heaven, but... You know, really, it's, it's a kind of a sad story of a guy who just really had a lot of potential, but then because of addiction, eventually it, it kind of destroyed his body and he died. My point is, all sin is actually a lot more like that than what you might think. This is what sin does. You know, what we tend to think is that you are actually using sin, or, you know, you're using whatever kind of misordered desires you might have. You know, you're using sin to get pleasure, or to get comfort, or to get security. And, and you know, like, I would imagine that, like, for example, for my uncle, the first time, or maybe even the second or third time, like, trying out, like, a new substance, there's a little bit of a buzz that goes along with that. Like, it seems like you are actually using the substance. But in reality, the substance, or, or even more generally, like, sin is actually using you. And that's why Jesus says, all sin is slavery. So, It's not just being addicted to things like substances. Sin is being addicted to anything that takes the place of God. It's looking to something and living for something other than God to find satisfaction. Or the Bible likes to use the word idolatry to describe this. So let me just give you a couple of examples of what we might be living for tonight. You might be living tonight for what other people think of you. And that's called approval idolatry. Maybe you're living tonight to find a significant other or to get married. That's called relationship idolatry. Could be that you're living tonight to be seen as competent. Maybe that's like in your job or in your family. Maybe it's kind of seeming confident in social settings. Maybe it's being confident around the opposite sex. That's what you might call success idolatry. Uh, You know, it might be that you're living for money, money idolatry, which is looking to how much money you have in your bank account to feel well off or or financially secure. I heard one pastor one time called money self-esteem currency. Kind of interesting. Maybe you come from a family where you are living for your parents' expectations of you. And you know that if you fall short of what they expect, then your whole life's going to fall apart. That would be family idolatry. Uh, One that I can relate to, you might be living tonight for being seen as a particular kind of person. You know, maybe that's how you see yourself. Maybe it's how other people see you. You know, you're like the life of the party or you're the class clown or you're the really quiet person or you're the really serious person. Well, let's call that identity idolatry. Like you have to be seen with a certain identity. Uh, Here's another one I relate to. Feeling in control of all the certainties, or sorry, all the uncertainties. In your life, or of having your life turn out in a particular way. Control idolatry. Let me read you just a couple more here. Uh, maybe your thing, maybe it's kind of more with your head rather than your heart or your hands. So being looked at as someone who always knows the right answers, you know, maybe someone who's read a lot of books, maybe someone who just did really well in school, we can call that intellect idolatry. Maybe it's body image, you know, having a certain look. Maybe you constantly are working out because you really want to appear with a certain physique. That would be appearance idolatry. Uh, Maybe it's only eating certain kinds of foods, you know, like the healthy foods or, you know, this kind of diet, diet idolatry. Maybe it has to do not so much with you, but you live to see your particular county, state, country, political party, you know, you live to see those things, those, those turn out in a certain way. And if they don't, then you get really anxious and nervous. Your life then falls apart. That's political idolatry. Or it could even be this is maybe the most sinister of all. Maybe your idol is actually this deep desire to be seen by others as just a really faithful follower of Jesus. Now, of course, that's good. You know, it's good to be a faithful follower of Jesus. But you can actually put that above God. And that's, you might call, religion idolatry. Being seen as a really righteous, you know, religious person who does all the religious requirements, who follows all the rules. So that's a big, long list. And, you know, I don't know, maybe if you're like me, you kind of hear some of those, just like, oh, I just got shot, you know. (laughs) Yeah, so maybe some of those hit home. The point is... You know, whatever the idol is, at first it might seem like you're using that thing. Like that thing gives you a sense of significance, a sense of identity, a sense of security. You know, you might be living for money, you get money, it makes you feel pretty powerful. Or you're living for a relationship, you get into a relationship, and it makes you feel pretty good. Like, wow, this really cool person is into me. <laughs> like, ah, oh, that's just a great feeling. <laughs> but in reality, the thing is that the, the thing that you are are functionally worshiping is actually using you you are a slave to whatever that thing is because if you get it you're always going to be insecure about losing it and, you know john rockefeller he was kind of like the elon musk of you know 100 some years ago really really rich guy but they said about rockefeller that he for a, a period of his life he lived on a diet of milk and crackers because his stomach would get so upset, he would get so nervous about losing his money. He couldn't sleep well at night because he was afraid of losing his money. So here's a guy who literally had like what many of us would dream of, and it didn't make him happy. He was always insecure about losing it. Or, you know, even if you do get it, just like Rockefeller, you may not enjoy it. Because our hearts are too big to be satisfied by anything in this world. In in the Bible, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, God says he has set eternity in the hearts of men. Uh, This uh, earlier, uh, I think sometime this week, I was, I think I was, I don't know what I was doing. I think I was probably wasting time. Don't do this, you guys. But uh, I was on Wikipedia, and uh, I, I was on the article that was about the universe, And there's a little graphic on there. Okay, actually, if this doesn't, you know, okay, if you're, like, not wasting time and you, like, just have time to kill, put it that way, you should go on this Wikipedia page and look at the little picture of the size of the universe. It'll blow your mind. And it's pretty amazing, like, just how utterly small we are and how utterly big the universe is. Well, eternity is even bigger than that. And so, like, when the Bible says he has set eternity in the hearts of men, I mean, do you realize what that's saying? about like the depth of desire that God has wired in each and every one of us. And only something infinite is going to be big enough to fulfill that kind of desire. So that's why any other thing that you're worshiping, any other thing that you're looking to for identity or significance is going to enslave you, unless it's Jesus. Only Jesus can satisfy because he's made us for himself. So that's why this story about slavery matters to us because All sin is slavery. If you are someone who is is struggling with any of these idols, those things are enslaving you. So this is a story that, first of all, starts with slavery, the very same kind of slavery that we are in because of sin. But then, the next part of the story has to do with what God did about it. And the way that he does that is through redemption by a sacrifice. Redemption by a sacrifice. So if you look at... uh, Ooh, a little morbid. We've got that picture of the grave up there still. But uh, there might be a slide here for this next one. Chapter 12, versus, uh, verse 3 here. There it is. Yeah. Um, so chapter 12, verse 3 says, uh, tell the whole community of Israel uh, to take a lamb for, for his family, you know, a person's family. And then jumping down to verse 6, it uh, says, take care of them, you know, take care of the lambs until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So instruction was, okay, take a lamb, uh, raise a lamb. I was actually uh, hanging out recently with some friends of mine who actually raise uh, sheep. And I actually got to see like a baby little lamb. It was like 30 minutes old, very cute. Uh, But by the time they're one year old, they're actually like pretty big and not very cute. So if you think that, you know, these were really cute lambs, you're kind of like, oh, I'm so sad that they had to kill the cute little lamb. Well, don't worry, they're not cute. Okay, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) you rest easy tonight. Okay, so, so they, uh, they have to take the lamb. They have to slaughter the lamb. And the reason they have to slaughter the lamb is because, if you know the story, when God rescues them, he does this by sending all these plagues on Egypt. So like, if it, anyone ever seen the movie Prince of Egypt before? Oh, it's like the best movie. And there's that great little song with, uh, who was it who sings that song? It's uh, Rafe Fiennes and Val Kilmer, I think, were the two guys who played Moses. And Yeah, yeah right. Uh, well, not that one, a different song. But it's a great song that, you know, you see all the plagues and there. are pretty, pretty, pretty intense. And the last plague, the 10th plague. Thus says the Lord. Yes, that's right. Yes. You know, by the way, this advertisement, Blake, is probably our foremost movie authority. If you ever have any questions about movies, you should go talk to Blake. Yeah. All right. Um, but uh, the plagues, the, the last plague was the death plague. So it's when the angel of death would come through the land of Egypt and would take the life of every firstborn. And the only way for people to be spared was for them to sacrifice a lamb and put the lamb's blood on the door of your house. A a lamb or, or a goat. I think you could use a goat as well, it says. But the point is, without a sacrifice, the Israelites would be put to death. Now, okay, remember that there's always a road from every Old Testament story to Jesus. Well, here's the road to Jesus. A thousand or so years later, John the Baptist... Sees a guy walk by and it's Jesus and he points to Jesus. Remember what he says? He says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's kind of interesting. He doesn't say the Lamb of God who covers over the sin of the world. You know, the sacrifices in the Old Testament, you find out actually they couldn't fully deal with sin. They were kind of like throwing a blanket over something. It would just kind of, you know, cover it up for a little while until God could deal with it later. You know, I don't know if you guys do that. Sometimes, like, when I clean my house, I've got a corner in my house that I call the corner of death. And all the stuff that, like, I don't have time to really deal with or properly clean up, I'll just, like, shove it into the corner of death. And then, you know, little by little, like, the corner of death just gets, like, bigger and bigger and worse and worse. Uh, But, you know, don't worry. I actually started cleaning the corner of death last week. So, you know. Never fear. But but this doesn't say covers over. It says the Lamb of God who takes away, who actually really can deal with sin. And then notice it says it doesn't say take away the sin of the Israelites. It says the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because Jesus is the true Lamb of God. You actually, if you read through the Bible, you see how the heart of God grows larger and larger. In the book of Genesis, when God... In the story of Cain and Abel, Abel offers a sacrifice that's sufficient for one person, for himself. Then you come to the story of the Exodus, where God commands them to sacrifice a lamb for a whole household. Then in the next book, the book of Leviticus, there's a a day called the Day of Atonement, where an animal would be sacrificed for the whole nation. But then finally you come to Jesus, where Jesus sacrifice. Is sufficient to cover the sin of the whole world. And Jesus is a sacrifice for the whole world uh, in in fulfillment of all the things that the Old Testament had said about him. One of those places is the book of Isaiah. So, the book of Isaiah, there's a, a famous little chapter, Isaiah 53, that speaks of Jesus. And it says that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now, if you were an ancient Israelite and you were reading Isaiah 53, you were reading about this idea that sin had to have a penalty, well, that wouldn't have surprised you. And the reason it wouldn't have surprised you is because, as an Israelite, you would have known probably better than most of us about a particular aspect of God's character, which was his holiness. I think especially today, like, we tend to think of God as kind of a, like a half-senile old man. Kind of like a, a grandparent who really spoils you and kind of turns a blind eye to you know, all the naughty things you do when you're a kid. But the Israelites knew that God was a holy God. He was a God of justice. And he, God had actually helped teach them this through the system of sacrifices. I, I've told the story here before. I had a professor in college who one night was driving uh, with his wife down this mountain road or whatever, and they, they hit a deer. And they don't quite kill the deer. <laughs> the deer's like clinging onto life. They can kind of see behind them. And so his wife kind of says, Jim, you've got to go put the thing out of its misery. So he pulls off the side of the road, grabs a hunting knife out of his car because he was, you know, he was that kind of professor. And he takes the hunting knife and he goes and he you know, finds the deer just like limply, you know, clinging to life on the side of the road. He takes the deer. He cuts the deer's throat. And he told us that he, he watched as the life drained out of this deer's eyes. And then he said, you know, if I had to do that every time I sin, I think I would take my sin a lot more seriously. And so the Israelites knew That God is a holy God. He isn't a God who can just sweep sin under the rug and say, oh, it doesn't matter. And you know it doesn't matter too, by the way. Because why is it that it's so easy to have a bigger rearview mirror than a front windshield? And to always be looking back on all the things that we most deeply regret and are ashamed over. and, And for those things to just still have a hold on us. Or we also know this because if you ever have been really horribly sinned against, if you've been abused, if someone that is close to you has ever experienced that, I mean, you know how deeply traumatic and painful that is. And to simply say, oh, it doesn't matter? I mean, what kind of God would that be if he didn't actually get indignant and angry over the things that have been done to us, the evil things, the wrong things that have been done to us, and maybe that we have done to other people? And so, therefore, the Bible says that there has to be a sacrifice. Sin must be punished because God is just. But because God is love, he chose, instead of punishing us, to take the punishment upon himself in the person of his son. I'm going to put a, a quote on the screen. And I am going to read this quote. This is, this is kind of a... It's like a very intense quote. But the reason I want to read this is because this is such an amazing description of what happened on the cross. So listen carefully to this. Uh, uh, Well, I don't know. Maybe, well, hmm. we have a problem with this particular slide tonight. You know, maybe you're really, maybe you have really sharp eyes and you can kind of read what that says. But I sure can so, uh, oh, Jay says it's in tongues. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, let me read this quote. Listen carefully to this. This is a description of what happened on the cross. God, because in his mercy he willed to forgive sinful men, and being truly merciful, willed to forgive them righteously, that is, without in any way condoning their sin. Purposed to direct against his own very self in the person of his son the full weight of that righteous wrath which they deserved. That's what Jesus did. Or, you know, here's a simpler way that you could put that. This is from an old, old hymn that probably you've never sung before. I've never sung it before, but the words are really good. And it says, God could not pass the sinner by. Justice demands that he should die. But on the cross of Christ we see how God can save, yet righteous be. God took our sin and he put it on Jesus. And if God took our sin and he put it on Jesus, that means that we don't have it anymore. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see Us as sinners, he sees us as righteous in Jesus because Jesus took our sin. The cross was a judgment. That was God judging Jesus in our place. It was him entering into our punishment in his own person. Uh, Years ago, I was listening to, it was some kind of recording, some sort of sermon recording. Uh, and, And in this story, this guy told the story of a dream that he had. And he said that in the dream, he's standing out, you know, out somewhere in, in some, you know, some place out in nature. And he sees a guy like charging at him, running up this hill. And the guy just looks really, really like, angry. And, and he, you know, the guy's kind of like, oh, like, huh, why is this guy so angry at me? And he realizes it's Jesus. And, and this you know, angry Jesus comes up to him and points right at him, points right at his chest and says, give me back my stuff. And the man says, stuff, Jesus, what what stuff are you talking about? And Jesus just repeats himself and says it even more firmly, give me back my stuff. And he says, Lord, I don't know what you're talking about. What stuff of yours do I have? And again, Jesus says, give me back my stuff. And he says, Lord, tell me, what, what are you talking about? What stuff have I taken from you? And Jesus says, it's your sin, your shame, your guilt. You're trying to hold on to all these things that I paid for on the cross. And they're not yours anymore. You have no right to them anymore. You can't hold on to them anymore. Those things are mine. I purchased them from you. Give me back my stuff. Are you holding on to something that isn't actually yours to hold on to? Because if you're in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, if you've trusted your life to Jesus, that sin no longer is yours. Jesus took that. And he said on the cross, when he bore all that sin, it is finished. Which was a phrase that people used back in that day. It was a business term. It meant paid in full. So like if a business guy was paying another business guy and the transaction was completed, they would say, it is finished. And it meant paid in full. And when Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. He meant it. There's nothing else that needs to be done for your sin to be atoned for. Jesus paid it all. And that's why the Passover story is about the gospel, because it's about how God had to have a sacrifice or had to be a sacrifice for our sin, because God is a God of love, a God of justice. The cross is the one place in the universe where God's perfect love and God's perfect justice meet in unison. And then the last thing, there's one more thing uh, in this story that God did on the night of the Passover. So first, you know, we talked about how he rescued them from slavery. We talked about how he ransomed them or redeemed them uh, through a sacrifice. And then last of all, he saved them through faith. Uh, So verse 7 talks about this. The next instruction that God gave them after they slaughtered the lamb... They were to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and on the tops of the door frames of the houses where they would eat the lambs. And then if you jump down to verse 12, um, God explains what that'll do. It says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you. So what do you notice about this little detail? Uh, The thing to notice here is that it wasn't enough just for the blood to be shed. The blood actually had to be applied onto the doorposts of their homes. So if you didn't put the you know, if the lamb was slaughtered, but you didn't actually apply the blood to the doorposts, then the angel of death would still get you. He wouldn't pass over your home. And in the same way, God invites all of us to apply what Jesus did to our own lives through faith. So faith is not a work. It's not something you do. Faith is a response. It's it's not clenching your fists and gritting your teeth until you kind of say, I think I have enough faith now, like I can finally believe. Faith is just looking at what Jesus did and personalizing it. It's saying, wow, I see now. Like, Jesus, I see that you really love me. Just not, you know, not like love in the abstract, but you really love me. I believe that he really died for me. Faith is seeing what Jesus did and building your life on it, putting your trust in it. You know, uh, Billy Graham was a famous evangelist who died a couple of years ago. Billy Graham got to preach the gospel live to more people than anyone in human history. There's like a conservative estimate, I believe, is that something like, I can't remember if it was three, I think it was like three million people made a profession of faith in response to the preaching of Billy Graham. I mean, that's phenomenal. And yet when Billy Graham, you know, stands, quote unquote, at the pearly gates, it's not really what the Bible says, how things work, but you know, let's just you know, use the image. When Billy Graham stands at the pearly gates, and let's say that God asks him, hey, Billy Graham, why should I let you into heaven? You know, he's not going to say, oh, Lord, because I preached the gospel to so many people, or Lord, because I led so many people to faith in you. The only reason that he or that any of us can enter into the kingdom it's because of the shed blood of Jesus. That is what we build all of our salvation on. And so the Israelites had to take the blood, they had to apply it. The, we, the way that that happens for us is through faith. Just as they used a, a little brush to apply the blood to their doorposts, salvation is by faith. It's just us saying, yes, like, Lord, I, I, I'm going to receive what you've done for me. And just, you know, for a minute, imagine if you had a time machine tonight, imagine you stepped into the time machine and imagine that you could actually go back in time to the night of the Passover. And let's say that you're there in Egypt and you're kind of walking around, you know, seeing all the, the Israelite houses. And imagine that as you're walking, you kind of pass by a couple of houses. Uh, you notice that a couple of them actually don't have the blood on the doorpost, but then you notice a couple of them do. And let's say that you're kind of curious, so you kind of knock on the first door, uh, one of the houses that you notice doesn't have the blood. And you knock on the door and say, hey, you know, I, I heard that something really important happening tonight. And, you know, I kind of heard that you know, there's meant to be like some, some like lamb's blood or something on, on the doorpost. You know, I noticed you don't have any. Like why any reason that you didn't put it up there? And, you know, imagine that the guy in the first house says, well, you know, I, I know that Moses said, you know, put the, the blood on the door. But, you know, he doesn't realize that I go to church every single week. I've served in the church since I was a kid. I got baptized. I got my Iwana certificate, you know. I watched VeggieTales growing up. You know, all my friends are Christian. I'm a really good person. Like, I give, you know, I tithe. I, I don't cheat on my taxes. You know, like, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Don't even know who those are, you know. I only listen to classical music. <laughs> well, that guy would be, he would be an idiot. Because all those things don't save him. The only thing that can save is the blood of the Lamb. It says in the Bible that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. The very best things that you've been most proud of doing, those things are like utter garbage in God's eyes. That is how high His holiness is above ours. So the first house is the house of the moralist. Imagine that you come to another house, you also notice no blood on the door. So you knock on the door, say, Okay, what's the deal? Why no blood? Well, the guy says, you know, I actually think that it's kind of a cool idea, you know, putting blood on your doorposts. You know, it's kind of a really, uh, you know, you, you could build a philosophy off of that. You know, you could probably develop a religion based off that. You could write books on that. You know, I have an aspiration of being a professor someday. I'm, I'm going to write a PhD thesis on this whole cool idea of putting the blood over the door. You know, I, 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 I think that, that sounds like a pretty good philosophy to me. So door number two, this is the philosopher. You know, someone who loves all the ideas of Christianity, but isn't really interested in actually making it personal and looking at their own lives, looking at their own sin and saying, no, this is more than just a nice idea. I actually need it. I need to be protected from judgment. Let's look at another house. So you go down the little street a little further, you notice, okay, here's another house. No blood on the door. And the guy who uh, you talk to at house number three says, well, Huh. Yeah, you know, I heard about this whole judgment thing. But, you know, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. You know, the weatherman sometimes says, it's going to rain. The next day it's sunny out. You know, you just... Pfft. Six of one, half a dozen of another, you know. <laughs> I don't really think I need to worry too much about what's coming. Well, you might say that this is the not so much like the theist or the atheist. This is the apotheist's house. The house is someone who just kind of says, well, I don't really care. doesn't really matter. I can just be apathetic. If you're here tonight and just kind of have thought, well, (laughs) you know, okay, I guess Christianity is important to some people, but I just don't really think it matters much. Uh, No need to really look into something. Uh, But C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance. If false, it's of no importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. So don't be... The apatheist, Don't be the philosopher. Don't be the moralist. But now imagine uh, maybe a scenario that might hit a little closer to home for some of us. You know, now imagine you go to one more house down. This time you notice that actually the blood is covering the doorposts. But you notice that the person in this house is kind of like constantly craning their head out the window. They're looking around. You can tell that they're just really terrified. And so you kind of knock on their door. The person who answers the door is just, you know, almost like catatonic with fear, with nervousness, and, and you say, hey, like, w- what's going on with you? Like, you know, you have the blood over the door, so you should be safe. And the guy says, well, you know, yeah, I know that I have the blood over the door, but, you know, what if I didn't, what if it wasn't enough? You know, what if I, in addition to putting the blood on the door, like, what if God wanted me to, to do something else? You know, what if I had to, like, live a really good life? Or what if I had to, you know, do something else? Or what if the blood doesn't work? Or what if, you know, what if I, like, lose my salvation? You know, what if the blood only is temporary? What if it only applies for, like, five minutes? But then if I don't reapply it five minutes later, it's not going to work. So here's a guy who actually has the blood over the door of his house, but isn't secure. And sometimes we can do the same thing. You know, we, we say, well, you know, I think I'm a Christian, but... You know, what if it isn't enough? What if, you know, like, I I know that I'm, I I screw up still. I know that I'm not perfect. And and what if those things actually disqualify me? What if one day those things lead me to drift in my salvation? Well, do you see what's happening? You're actually looking not at the blood. You're looking at you. Did you notice, look at this. This is verse 13. This is one of the most important little details in this story. You notice what God says? He says... The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So it's not that you have to look at your own life and kind of like do a little interest inventory, kind of evaluate yourself and say, well, you know, today I'm just really screwing up in this area and that area and that area. So, gosh, that's a failing grade. No, you don't look at yourself. Jesus is the one who looks not at you, who looks at the blood and says, because that person, even though they're undeserving, even though they're unworthy, even though they sin and screw up, that person has the blood of Jesus over the door of their life. And when God sees that, he says, my son, my daughter, that person belongs to me. Nothing can snatch them out of my hand. And then one last house You notice this time the blood is over the door again. You look inside, you realize there's like a roaring fire. You see a whole family together. They're happy. They're laughing together. You knock on their door. You say, "Hey, like you're so much different than the other guy. Why are you so much less afraid than him?" And the guy just says, "Well, like the blood's on my doorposts." And God said that that's all that is required. And the same thing applies for us. All that is required is Jesus. Nothing more. Nothing less. Nothing else. And so we can be like that last house. If you're here tonight and you have put your trust in Jesus. And we don't have to fear anything because the blood is on the doorpost. So I just want to ask you tonight, which house are you in? Which house do you most relate to? Um, Just, you know, kind of by way of closing, I want to just tell a quick story. Um, There was a a night probably close to four years ago now when I was up visiting our friends at Thrive Kids App. And uh, there was a girl that was there that night. Uh, she had uh, had a religious upbringing. Uh, her life um, had kind of had some some difficulty and hardship in it. Um, and she was persuaded that that her life wasn't put together enough to be a Christian. I mean, that she had to get her life together first before accepting Jesus. Uh, but that night, it was just really obvious. God had just really worked through the message. Um, something in her had been stirring, and so. After the message, um, this girl, uh, Lucy, is her name, we started talking. Uh, and, and just, you know, some of these things, just sort of talking about, uh, you know, where she was at. And then eventually, um, we wound up reading a passage from the Bible together, Romans chapter 10. Um, and I'll never forget Lucy looking at the words of Romans chapter 10, where it says, If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart uh, that God, uh, that, that, that confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I remember Lucy reading this just silently to herself. And then she just said, I can't believe it's so simple. I can't believe it's so simple. And it was just one of the most beautiful moments of my life that night to see Lucy pray to accept Jesus. Because she realized that it wasn't about her And what she brought to the table was everything about what Jesus did and what he brings to the table. You don't contribute anything to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So tonight, I just hope that you can remember the first Passover as actually tonight. We're remembering, uh, maybe not the first Passover, but what you might call the great Passover. Because literally, uh, tonight, this is Maundy Thursday. This is the day that the church around the world remembers the night that Jesus, almost 2,000 years later, celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And it was the weirdest Passover that anyone's ever seen. I once heard a pastor make the comment that the reason it was such a bizarre Passover was that usually, the Lamb of God would be on the table. It would be the lamb that everyone would eat. But that night, the Lamb of God was on the table because the Lamb of God was at the table. And scarcely 24 hours from that night, Jesus would go to the cross. He would lay down his life for us. He would take upon himself some of the worst physical suffering that can ever be inflicted upon a person. And actually, the worst kind of suffering that Jesus experienced wasn't the physical suffering. It was a spiritual suffering. You know, another point I heard someone make once. You know, if you have ever had like a close friend just completely cut you out of their life, you know, imagine how painful that is. But now imagine that uh, it's not just uh, a friend but maybe a family member. Maybe one of your own parents or one of your own siblings who just cuts you out of their life. Imagine how much deeper the pain would be. And it would probably be even worse if this was someone that was like your significant other, your fiancé or a husband or a wife. And imagine that one day they just walk out on you, divorce you, leave you, abandon you. The deeper and more intimate the relationship, the absolutely more devastating the pain of separation would be. And on the cross, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was the only one who was perfectly one with the Father. So we can't even fathom how profoundly profound it was when for those three hours of darkness on the cross, the Father and the Son were separated. And Jesus was experiencing the essence of hell. For you and me. And it's because of what he did that we can know peace with God. We can know security in our salvation. And we can live with a real, real lasting sense of hope. So if you're here tonight, you know that that's just not what you experience on a daily basis. Would the story of Passover just be a reminder to you that that is what God longs for for you? That is what Jesus died for you to know and to experience. And in Christ... And that can be yours. Let me pray. Father,
1: thank you that it's just Jesus. Thank you that we can't
0: add or take away anything from what He did. God, help us just to look and live. Help us just to see and say, Yes. God, I, I there's nothing else I can do. There's nothing else I can add. I mean, Lord, I know it's a lifelong journey um, for me and for everyone in this room to really come to accept at the deepest heart level that you really truly do love us. But God, do it by your Holy Spirit. Would you just tonight deepen in every one of us just the true heart level sense that you adore us, you love us, you long for us, you really did lay down your life for us. In Jesus' name, amen.